Welcome to The Eating Cast. I am Chris. And I'm Vincent. And today we are joined by Ada Chang. Ada Chang is a professor turned storyteller, solo performer, and storytelling show producer. She has also been featured at storytelling shows and done her two solo performances all over the country. Ada is the producer and the host of four storytelling shows, including Pour One Out, a monthly storytelling series, Am I Man Enough, Talk Stories, an Asian American Asian Diaspora storytelling show, and Speaking Truth series. She creates platforms for people to tell difficult and vulnerable stories, as well as for communities who may not have opportunities otherwise. She is the Education and Outreach Specialist with Women's Leadership and Resource Center at UIC. Her motto is make life, make your life the best story you tell. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure yeah. to have you on, Ada. Yeah, Hopefully. this is a yeah, long time coming. I know you had mm. to uh, reschedule the show. And so I want to congratulate you. I know it was, you know, it was difficult trying to adjust. Uh, yes a new time confronting a lot of uncertainties, but I'm glad we, we made it. <laughs> yeah, we made we it. Yes, yes, yes. We definitely made it. Yeah. And yes. Um, in term, in uh, regards to like the whole transition from uh, March to now, definitely was a, a big one, you know, just because like, you know, a lot of us, you know, around the world have uh, ended up indoors, staying indoors, working from home unable to go out as much as we'd like, unable to see our friends, family, as well as kind of our loved ones. Mm -hmm. So it's been a very difficult times for uh, a lot of people and we just wish everyone, you know, we're almost there. We'll push through this. We're almost there. I, it's interesting, we're just talking before the show. We haven't really hit a peak yet. Yeah, uh, I know. You know, it's, uh, you know, if you look at other countries, where New Zealand, in fact, has has announced that they they completely uh, eliminated the virus, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, we see it's, it remains to be watched, uh, but we are still climbing in terms of the infection rate, and and so yeah, I mean, we are witnessing, you know, in March, we're since March, we're witnessing two at least two major historical crises, right? One mm. is the pandemic. The other one is a Black Lives Matter, right? The yep. against police brutality. Mm -hmm. And so definitely it's important to postpone and really think through what we're going to talk about. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. I think the best solution is to reduce testing so that there will be a reduced number of cases. <laughs> and higher uh, spread. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's really the, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting where if you deny issues existed then the issues don't exist anymore uh That's awesome, and I, right? yeah 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 but but i think the way that the administration uh thinks about the virus is the same way that white people think about uh you know anti-blackness and racism and white privilege right if you're in denial of something then you you can pretend that they don't exist but in fact they exist they are they're real uh, so that's really important to think about. Mm -hmm. That's really and that's a good transition. Oh, yeah. sorry. Oh no, no. I, I was just gonna say like that's a really interesting thought, right? Like the whole idea of like you no. Know, as the world sees like you know the current issues, like it's definitely like um, well known, you know that like you know we definitely have an issue with a pandemic going on right now, and we also have an issue with just like um, equality, right? Mm -hmm. With like the Black Lives Matters movement. And the whole idea of like, um, kind of like a lot of people, how they're saying like, oh, this is not real or this is fake news, right? This pandemic's not really happening. The idea of like turning a blind eye to then like, you know, drop statistics. Like let's say some people that don't believe it, you know, they turn a blind eye, they don't get tested and stuff like that. And then now they're an outlier, right? They're not on the data, mm -hmm. you know? So like those people, like it adds up over time, which may show a decline in cases, but in reality, it's actually a lot higher than we actually thought it was. Mm -hmm. And and you know, in the, these two things, we're dealing with um, uh, you know anti-intellectualism, but there's also you know in terms of the pandemic, in terms of the way the way a lot of people think about the virus, there is the element of anti-science, right? that we are at a point where we don't believe, we don't trust, we don't believe what scientists are saying. 
we don't believe what experts are saying, right? If you look at demonstration, it's consistent effort in silencing the experts, uh, the health professionals, the specialists in telling what's the reality uh, of the virus, right? Um, if you look at in the beginning where people thought that this was very similar to a flu, which I totally understand because we didn't have enough data to understand the phenomena, right, or the severity of the issue. But as more data came out, uh, you are still seeing this trend of anti-science, anti-intellectualism uh, going on, uh, that you're still seeing people deny um, that, uh, that, you know, still insist that this is the same as the flu or deny the reality of the virus, that is thinking that this is uh, you know, constructed or produced by a lab in China. And this whole idea that, you know, we, we want freedom so we don't want to wear a mask without thinking, you know, the demand to wear masks is not about uh, impingement, infringement on the freedom, but about protecting uh, the collective well-being. And, and mm -hmm. so you see this element of anti-intellectual in the way we think about the COVID-19, the way we, and, and this has been, you know, this is a, a process in the making, making. If you think about the way, you know, anti-vaccine vaccine movement, right? Uh, and the way that our president emboldens disregard uh, facts, right? And so now we're at a point where everything goes. Uh, and, and so that's, that for me is a concern. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a huge concern too, because when you see the people that are anti-intellect and anti-science, one of their arguments of not wearing a mask is, um, uh, it's like, oh, the mask doesn't protect you from the sickness, it, it protects, it it just uh, it just restricts the droplets from going to other people, and then that's their argument. They're like, "Why would I wear a mask that makes me sick? Like, really?" So not only are they selfish, but they really don't see or prioritize the uh, like the general public's health concern, mm -hmm. the community. They just care about themselves, and it's the same when um when they really wanted to just get a haircut or go to the bars to drink, and you know, it it says a lot about the people those kind of people in this country. And I feel like that's the demise of this country, so. Absolutely. So. Uh, I think you point out something really important that it's really not about you, right? It's about other people. And, and this is actually a good, good place to really think about, you know, the difference in terms of masculinity and femininity, right? These, you know, this angle analysis still valid. Uh, if you look at a lot of countries with success in reducing the infection rate for COVID-19, <coughs> oftentimes there are countries with women politicians, right? Uh, that government officials who are women. And, and so there has been used to talk about how these women politicians really is taking on and insist on the importance of guarding the wellness, right, uh, of the community, uh, the collective well-being. So, for example, my family in Taiwan, very early on, <coughs> my apology, right from the start, everyone started putting on masks, right? There was no argument about it because they have learned from the experiences with SARS that that was something that had to be done. Um, sure, you're going to have people who uh, who were selfish, but mostly they understood the importance of putting on masks, right? Um, my brother was asking me questions about, you know, do you have masks? Do you, are you wearing them? Even when that hadn't entered our consciousness. And, and so you see these, you know, cultural um, difference in terms of um, the the emphasis on it's not just about me individual freedom, but also safeguarding the well-being of everyone around us. However, if you think about our own politicians, right? Uh, it, it, uh, Mike Pence, uh, you know, a while ago 
visited Mayo Clinic, um, even though the clinic asked him to wear a mask, he, he didn't, right? If you look at our own politicians, right? That there is, so this, they, they view the wearing the mask as, a, as the sign of weakness, as a stigma. It is that it, it, it sort of uh, reduce their masculinity. And that really reminds me of, uh, you know, they, they feel that uh, why do I want to be reduced by the virus, right? Um, I'm strong, I'm a strong man, so, so I should be able to do whatever I want. And that really remind me, if you think about Zhang Wen, right, this, this epitome of uh, hegemonic white masculinity where the conquest of the Wild West and the rugged individualism, right? And so, you, you know, you see a lot of our own male politicians and the way they are treating the virus. It reminds me of this toxic hegemonic white masculinity. It's all about me conquesting, confronting uh, about my freedom, about my right, but not necessarily about the well-being of other people. And they view caretaking as a sign of weakness. So that's really important for us to think about. Uh, you know, even the way we approach uh, COVID-19 shows, uh, you know, the, this dichotomy between uh, masculinity and femininity. You know, when you say the toxic masculinity in that part, it, it made me think, actually. So when we needed more PPE, right, we needed more uh, masks, um, and I obviously I don't know what the internal politics is like between governors and the president or like the private animosity they have for each other. But from whatever social media put out there, you could clearly see that um, there was some kind of pride and ego at play, like a lot of it. Right. It was mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm not going to buy PPE from China. Like that, that's the that's that's the enemy or whatever. And like. And, and that's the competition. And, and if I buy from them and distribute to America, that says less of me. And that says less of how I, uh, that talks about how I'm running my, my country. And, and I don't want that. And then you have um, whatever Cuomo and Pritzker and they are like begging for help. And then you, they probably have like internal animosity. And then the president probably, you know, um, he doesn't want to step down to their level and say, you know what, you talk bad about me. So I'm not going to help you out. You guys are on your own. And stuff like that. That's that's how I see it on the surface level. Um, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong because I don't know. <clears throat> you know. There, there's definitely that. If you uh, go back to the rhetoric, so it's, for example, the uh, um, the Brazilian, uh, you know, president uh, has said, you know, I'm uh, and I can to the effect of I'm youthful, athletic, and and so I'm not afraid of a virus, right? Uh, the, the, the Prime Minister, Britain Prime Minister also says something very similar, you know, why would I be afraid of, uh, you know, the virus, the invisible enemy, right? And so, yes, you do see these manifestations of, uh, you know, competitive masculinities where on, it plays out on the world stage, right, of men uh, and men with power and privileges. Uh, where they compete in terms of the uh, of their ego and how that trickles down to the policy uh, making, and, and so uh, you know without falling into essentializing, but but you do see very distinct uh, you know ways where women politicians deal with you know approach the the the, the virus very differently from the male politicians, absolutely, um, and, and then you know. The, the world politics, right, uh, is oftentimes, you know, the, without reducing it, without being reductionist in that way, that, that you do see the play out, right, in terms of male politicians where they compete and, uh, you know, strive for the, uh, the, the, the limelight, right, um, you know, the power on the global stage. And you see that play out between, you know, Putin and and, and the, the uh, and our, you know, the Trump, and and so yeah, that's something important to really pay attention to. That's definitely something like when you really like break it down into that sense, you know, it's really for me at least, right? I didn't really notice how toxic it was actually, 
right? Like when you actually said that, like it just kind of like brought up a lot of things that happened, right? Like for instance, like um, one, yeah, definitely like um, our president and our government didn't outsource um, the production or like the purchase of uh, PPE, right? Or it was very slow on it, right? That was one thing that I definitely like came up. And then also from there, it also kind of like led me to like think of um, what the president did like a few, I can't remember how long ago it was because uh, quarantine brain, if you will. Um, but like, I want to say several weeks ago when um, the president went over to, I think uh, 3M or like one of the PPE manufacturers in the States and he went into the facility without a mask while everyone else was still wearing a mask. And like, just that really kind of like shows like either like, you know, arrogance or like just kind of like the whole thought like what you said, right? Like, oh, I'm very tough. I can't lose face in front of like, you know, the populace as well as kind of like the global leaders, you know? But in reality, right, kind of like looking back at it, it's like to be that responsible leader, to be that powerful leader, right? Sometimes a little bit of, you know, shame, if you will, for them will go a long way, right? Wearing a mask will show your adherence to what everything, like about with everything that's going on, right? As well as kind of showing awareness of what's going on with the older population, how to better protect them, right? Because a lot of times it's more detrimental, right? The whole virus on the older population. Even if you as an individual may not get it, right? Or you may feel like you don't have it. There's a lot of people out there that are asymptomatic, you know, that don't realize that they have it when they're actually carrying it. You know, and it's like, that's going to be a really big problem, especially like right now, you know, with like the virus and also the timing, right, of like the whole uh, Black Lives Matters movement, right, where everyone's outdoors protesting. You know, I'm not saying everyone's not wearing a mask out there, but like there is, I would say, a, much, a lot of people out there that aren't wearing masks or, protect, or uh, PPE, you know. Here's the thing to think about, you know, it is, um, if you look at our budget distribution, we give very little of our national budget to health, right? To education, social services. But we do give a lot to what? Military expenditure, police force, right? Uh, so military power nationally really is the major part, right? Our military budget uh, consume a whole chunk. And then if you look at local state level, it's our police force, right? And so you do see that we as nationally have a tendency already to give budget to areas that we, uh, uh, you know, look at as the, the hard, you know, science as opposed to the, the, the part that really about is about well-being, collective uh, welfare of the community, of the whole population, right? Um, and the other thing uh, to think about, uh, you know, even before the protest of Black Lives Matter, is the pandemic already showed how its effects, damaging effect on black and brown communities, right? Yep. Uh, because that's predominantly where the infection and the death rate lies. And so, so there's definitely a continuing that a pandemic already showed how disparity, whether we were talking about in social, economic, and health aspect, they help disparity, access to healthcare, access to, uh, to uh, you know, urgent cares, all these have damaging effects, right, on the black and brown communities, right, uh, predominantly black and Latino communities. And then you think about the murder of George Floyd. That's another dimension we, where it's important to really highlight the connection between uh, masculinity, femininity, and performance, and and uh, and race, absolutely. For when it comes down to going back just a little bit uh, in terms of wearing masks, I don't know if this was a feminist movement, but there were women who said wearing masks was equal to rape, because uh, I don't know if you heard about it, Ada, but like they were saying, um, you know 
I'm saying no to wearing the mask. And if the government is forcing me to wear a mask, that is equivalent to rape. It's about, uh, and, and I mean, even I have heard in terms of wearing a mask, very similar to, uh, I have seen white people compare it to internment camp. Really? Right? Or, or anything that people of color, uh, BIPOC have experiences, have experienced, right? And, and so there is that false equivalence, right? There is a difference between, so for example, we, will, we wear seat, seat belts when driving for our own protection, but also we follow rules on the road, mm -hmm. right? When we drive. There are rules that we follow every day, not only for us, but also for others' benefits. Not drinking, right? No drunk driving. You don't drink and drive, right? There are rules that we follow. You think about why is... You know, you should give your key away to your friends for them to drive if you drink. Why is that important? It's not just for you. It's also for other people as well. Texting. Texting when you drive. Right? It's not just for you. It's for other people as well. So we follow rule. We curtail our freedom not only for us, but also for the benefits of the community, right? So it is not as if we have never done that before. So there is a false equivalence to say this is taking your freedom away, right? Taking a freedom, there is a difference between freedom from and freedom to, right? So, for example, when people say we don't want to wear masks, they're talking about freedom to do things, right? And, and this is very uh, prevalent in this culture where people only want to talk about freedom to, right? I want to have the freedom to accumulate wealth. I want to have the freedom uh, to, to carry gun, to shoot animals. I want to have the freedom to drink and uh, drive. I want to have the freedom not to wear a mask without looking at the other side that is freedom from. We don't ask questions. Shouldn't people also have the freedom from poverty? Shouldn't people have the freedom from homelessness? Shouldn't people have the freedom from disease, illness? Shouldn't people have freedom from violence? Shouldn't people have freedom from racism, right? And so by emphasizing freedom too, you're only looking at one aspect of freedom, but you don't look at, when people ask you, when, when the government asks you to wear a mask, Sure, in some ways to curtail your freedom to go out without masking, but it is also to protect other people's freedom from illness, virus, disease. And, and so it's a balance that you have to think, but, but, but people act as if they always have freedom to do things, in fact, we follow rule. This is a country where we follow rules all the time. And people are being selective about what kind of rules they're willing to follow. And so there is that false equivalence there. Hmm. That's a very interesting perspective. I never thought about the freedom from it. I always, yeah, thought about freedom too. Huh. Uh, I mean, we, in this country, we talk so much about 
freedom to do things. But we never ask a question. And that's where we fall short. Because when we ask questions about freedom from, right, we only want to talk about freedom to do things, freedom to expand, freedom to annex, freedom to appropriate. But we never, we don't hardly ask questions about how about other people's freedom from. And when people ask, you know, sort of insist on, I simply want to, want the freedom from, that's the bare minimum. Think about this, right? George Floyd, think about Amor Arbery in, in Georgia, George Floyd in Minnesota, right? What Black Lives Matter, you know, the movement itself, the police brutality, what people are asking is simply, Freedom from police brutality. Freedom from police violence. Freedom from uh, murder by the state uh, power, right? And that's a bare minimum. They're not even asking freedom to do anything. They simply want to have the freedom from violence of all levels. And so, if in as a culture we simply focus on freedom from then we don't think about if we if we simply think about freedom to then we don't think about the importance of taking care of people how to ensure people have freedom from violence oppression that's um, definitely like a big thing to kind of like think about in terms of like how to properly like I guess direct one's um, thoughts and like one's freedoms right because like in a way where in, in a society that's predominantly like all about you right like um, as a free state or a free country you know America is pretty all about you the individual instead of the collective freedom which definitely is in my eyes, right, just kind of like just listening to that is like really sad because it's like our families, like my family, okay, like they came here for a better life for us, right? So they were thinking ahead, right? Not just themselves, but for the next generation, their children, and and then their great and then their grandchildren, their great grandchildren, everything like that, so on and so forth. And then to take that into perspective of like how society is right now in the States is like all about, like a lot of people, not saying everyone, but like a lot of people are all about themselves. How to, how do I better myself? Why should I inconvenience myself for the betterment of other people? Why should I do this? Why should I do that? Just because of he said, she said, right? It's a really interesting dynamic that like, just with a twist of the word, right? From like your freedom to our freedom, right? It's like a complete shift, right? It goes from a self-centered perspective to a global perspective or to a societal perspective. You know, and that's just really interesting. And I feel like that definitely should be a shift in the direction that we should be taking things, right? A we instead of a me, right? I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, individual cannot be liberated without uh, the collective liberation. Yeah. If you, if you look at a racial context in the United States, that's just the reality. Uh, but here's a really interesting thing. You know, I think we are also talking about the collectivism and individualism, right? And, and so you have seen, uh, you know, Republican politicians talk about the reason that Asians are doing, you know, Asian countries are, uh, you know, wearing a mask is because they're authoritarian regimes, right? Um, you know, completely missed the point that the Asian, some of the Asian countries have experienced democratization process, you know, throughout the past few decades, right? And this is not to say I want to, you know, there's definitely tension between uh, collectivism that individualism, that uh, there is the, the oppressive element to collectivism, right? It can be oppressive when you always have to do what the collective, what the community is asking you to do. That yeah. there is a possibility to erase your individual identity 
right? Individual agency in the name of the community and, and, and collectivity. And that's true. However, and, and, and should, but it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's like a swing of the spectrum. Then you go to the extreme that is all about individual because none of us are absolute individualistic. None of us can be. Imagine, just imagine the food that we eat. Somebody got to raise animals. Somebody got to grow vegetables, right? Somebody, right? Somebody has to do some groundwork for the food, even if we're talking about vegetables and meat, come to our kitchen. Somebody is, has been doing something for that to happen, right? Yeah. Think about, and so none of us can exist without collectivity. We all benefit the road that we travel, the street that we walk on, the water we drink, right? The garden, the, the parks, the everywhere. None of us can exist without collective, without history, without collective effort. And so we also need to recognize that, that we cannot talk about individuals for freedom and liberation without thinking about collective liberation. So in this country, when people are talking about individual freedom, oftentimes it means for white people, right? You can imagine during a pandemic, COVID, right? I was afraid to go out, all right? This face, right? Mm -hmm. I was afraid to wear masks, right? Uh, because I, I, you know, I felt like this face is a target. So I didn't work, I didn't go out, right? I changed my routine, right? During, even now, I mean, the, the attacks and assaults against people of Asian descent, Asian Americans still, still going on, right? So I had to change the routine just to make sure, to ensure my safety. Uh, because I, you know, when I walk down the street, I am worried that by the sheer fact that I look like this is an invitation of assumption that I carry disease, that I ca carry the virus. It's an invitation to violence. Now, now think about what's going on with Black Lives Matter, right? That even when Black people walk down to the street, their bodies, particularly for black men, their bodies are seen as, as are automatically associated with criminality, right? Uh, uh, they're completely demonized. They're seen as threatening. And so that immediately, uh, you know, invite violence. And, and one example uh, is Amy Cooper, Right, and we can talk about the performance of white femininity. I don't know if you watch that clip where she called the police and, and say uh, there's an African-American man, right? And that very much is a performance of white femininity, white womanhood, right? She should know that calling the police on black people can invite danger can invite threat, can invite death, but she did it anyway. And, and, and so she called uh, without thinking the danger that that call might impose, right? And so perform the, the, the white woman, white female innocence, white femininity, and immediately conjure the image of black uh, criminality. Right, the black and the way that we think about black masculinity, and that's a really important thing for us to think about how that uh, you know white womanhood, white femininity, is at the core of 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 our racial violence. That to preserve uh, the purity and the innocence of white womanhood lies at the core of our racial violence against black people. And so that's something very important 
to think about how masculine and femininity are always linked with race and how that plays out. Uh, Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper, is a prime example of how that can play out in real life interactions. I've never thought of it like that, right? How like an individual can, like in, in that sense, right? Can affect another individual's life just by, for instance, picking up the phone and calling the cops, right? Like um, in that case, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was like, um, it went the complete opposite direction of what Amy Cooper wanted though, correct? I mean, it's interesting where, you know, that's just an example for us because Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper, that incident happened at Central Park, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if you, and, and he only asked her to leash her dog. Yes. Right. Um, so why, why would you call the police on anybody? And, and what has happened is a series of events where you have white people calling police on black people. And, and so that's something I, I want you super fast to really think carefully in terms of that we as Asian Americans, uh, you know, as much as I can talk about my own oppression, that I also know that when I walk down on the street, uh, to the street to walk around, people don't call police on me, right? I'm not necessarily seeing a threatening, right? Uh, that I oftentimes am given the benefit of a doubt because of my own and our proximity to whiteness. And, and so the way to think about it is when we go out, when we are seeing our body, right, that we are already racialized, right? And, and the way people, we, we interact with one another, always with the racial understanding and images and, uh, and stereotypes about one another. And none of us are exempt from that. And so that's one thing to think about how masculine and femininity and race can be tied together and how we can replicate them in our interactions with one another. What, what would be an example of that um, replication of that interaction that you're talking about? Like, what does that look like? And this is really, it's about how often we look at, examine our own unconscious bias, right? Do we react to white people, black people, Asian people differently in certain contexts, right? Yeah. Do we automatically assume? So let me ask you, so for example, have you been to you know buildings that where you don't live and people open doors for you? Yeah. Okay. I don't think I have. Okay. So I oftentimes have people all open door for me with buildings at buildings where I don't live. I don't often have people ask me. What are you doing here? Yeah, they right? just let you in. Exactly. And so that's the part that you want to think about, right? Do you oftentimes, and, and discrimination and privilege go hand in hand. I oftentimes think about, I don't have a lot of people, even if I go into buildings, people open door for me. They don't necessarily ask me, where are you going? Whom are you here to see? Assumption. There is the assumption of innocence. But if you have a black person, then we oftentimes see that there is a presumption of guilt. That why are you here? Why are you using this gym? Why are you in this building? The assumption is that you don't belong here. You don't live here. Very similar when, how often do you, so let me ask the two of you. Have you been asked, where are you from? Yeah, I have. All the time. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, this, 
it's it's an example of by asking that question. It's not simply about people want to know where you're from. The yeah. underlying assumption is what you don't belong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Foreigner, right? The assumption is that you are not a norm here, right? Except people don't necessarily call police on us, but. Oftentimes, what manifests to us is polite racism mm -hmm. by asking, "Where are you from?" So think about this. And sometimes I have white people don't understand why am I being racist if I simply want to understand your culture. But here's the thing: I oftentimes ask them. It's about the context. Of course, I have asked other people, "Where are you from?" Too, I have asked that question, but it is always after some interactions, some understanding. I ask, I oftentimes ask people, when you go to the bar, when you go to the party, do you just walk to everyone and ask that question, "Where are you from?" Or do you only ask certain people with exotic features, with features that are unfamiliar, that you seeing as a uh, exotic different because you, you nobody asked everybody that same question mm -hmm. right so very similarly when black people enter their own building go to your apartment visit friends when people ask what are you doing here do you live here it's the same dynamic the assumption is that you don't belong now the other example to think about, George Floyd, people sort of the, the whole idea that he used the $20, uh, you know, bill, fake bill, uh, right? Yeah. So this whole idea about, uh, this whole idea about if you don't commit a crime, you don't, you're not going to have trouble with the police. But here's the thing. I have had experience where I, uh, one time a restaurant, it's a living Avondale, this restaurant gave me a fake bill. I didn't realize that. I walk across the street to buy something at this grocery store. They did this check and they told me that bill was fake, right? Now, I didn't know. Why would I pay attention to that when I took that bill from the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So they were, what do they do? They were going to confiscate it. At the time, I was, I was broke. I needed that money. So I say, no, please, give me back that money. I need to go across the street to that restaurant, have them give me back a real $10 bill because I need this money to live. I need this money. And they say by law, they have to take, they have to confiscate the bill. And then they told me, you know, we normally call police. And I said to them, call police. Because I want police to walk with me to go to the restaurant. So I can tell them they gave me that fake bill. They didn't call the police. So here's the thing. I was given the benefit of the doubt, right? When I say, I didn't know. When I say, please walk with me to that restaurant. I will show you, I just got out of that restaurant, got a $10 bill, come with me. They didn't call the police. They gave me back the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a privilege that we have. And of course, it's it's un it's uh it's very conditional too. We were just talking to another uh, guest, Alan Z, and he was saying like, we're uh that perpetual foreigner, and you know our privilege for some reason, right? It just comes and goes whenever um they see fit, right? Mm -hmm. Like when it comes to the pandemic, all of a sudden we're the target. But when it comes to your story, for example, okay, let's give benefit of doubt. Um, let's try to figure it out. 
and that's how you know racial dynamics got played out, right? And that's how easily BIPOC, Black, Indigenous people, color groups, different groups are pitted against one another under white supremacy, right? Yeah. That that we see this, uh, you know, I uh, that I see in. in a lot of time in immigrant communities because they when they move to this country they want to climb up the ladder you know immigrants know what's the best way to climb up the ladder you follow who is at the top mm -hmm. right so there's definitely the element of sub subscribing to the whiteness right there's definitely that right um, and, and so it is important for us to examine the anti-blackness within the Asian American community, absolutely. But this is, you know, at the same time, there are different kind of a dynamics, right? Prejudice, bias, and discrimination against us. Uh, and, and so oftentimes, different sort of minority communities see this as a zero-sum game that uh you know I, I see that play out in institution uh the gain for this group is the loss for another group right or yeah. the gain for the asian group is a loss but the reality is that we are all that that we are all under right the white supremacy and we we are pitted against one another and we, at times, or not if not oftentimes, engage in violence against one another as well, right? Uh, under white supremacy. So the key really is to think about how do we collaborate, right? How do we how do we um, work together? And, and so we're at that point, and, and you see this discussion about black Asian solidarity about addressing anti-blackness and that's necessary uh, but I also want you kind of bringing another dimension to it you know when uh, you know this whole discussion of the Hmong uh, member the, this Asian American who was the police officer stand by and watch everything I happen mm -hmm. um, for me, it's also important to address the differences within the Asian American community. As we address anti-blackness, we also need to address the disparity within the Asian, Asian American community. Because what do you mean by that? So for example, there's a danger to lump historically immigrants, let's say from East Asia, together with refugees, asylum seekers from Southeast Asia. Their experiences of migration are very different from if you enter this country as a student, right? If you enter this country as immigrants for economic opportunity, right? And, and so to lock them all, within the Asian, the Asian American community without looking at the disparity of their experiences and how their starting point is actually very different in this country, then that become a problem. So for example, the question I ask is, you know, as we sort of look at this person who, uh, who uh, is a police officer, we have to ask a question. Why do people enter the law enforcement field? Hmm. You and I, we have the privilege to go to college, to go to graduate school, to go into white collar professions. That's a form of privilege as opposed to for Southeast Asian communities who came here as refugees and asylum seekers may not have the same opportunities and go into law enforcement through military right is a way out of their economic socioeconomic situation 
So we have to address that dynamic as well, right? Not just the anti-blackness in Asian American community, but also the extreme disparity and the differences within the Asian American communities. And that had to come, these two hand in hand, and they are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Do you think with everything that's happening right now that society will progress in this sense of the dialogue and the narrative? Because I personally think that it will, you know, because we're bringing these issues up and we're talking about them. Um, Obviously, it's a great first step for dialogue, but I think that, I mean, like even for right now, just learning about the Southeast Asian disparity compared to other uh, ethnic groups, and it's it's eye-opening. And I think, you know, yeah. I'm between optimism and cynicism, right? Uh, We have been here before. Police brutality is not something new, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So we have been here before. And so in some way, yes, I'm seeing the momentum. I'm seeing there's a momentum uh, for the humanity, right? Demand for respect for humanity of black people, of BIPOC, uh, you know, black indigenous people of color communities, absolutely. But at the same time, I also feel a certain level of cynicism. And this is what I want to say is because I am worried that our concern for the you know, people of color communities, BIPOC communities, are going to, it's going to die down once the momentum is over. And my concern is that we don't treat this as a hashtag, right? My concern is really about, I don't care if people post something online because I don't judge people, you know, based on, because, and, and what I'm also seeing is a lot of performative allyship, right? People do performative activism. This whole idea that simply posting something online is going to absolve us of, of anti-blackness or uh, and, and, you know, racism. No, it's not. The key is long-term. But what's long-term? What do we need to do long-term-wise? That means mm-hmm. all of us are with some organizations or institutions, right, that engaging uh, problematic racist practices. Start with us confronting our own uh, institutions. And that for me is, you know, my worry is it's very similar to 2013, 14, 15. You see this high of Black Lives movement, right? Uh, so you see this up and, you know, up and down. And, and what my concern is, let's not make it a, I hope that this doesn't become another hashtag, uh, that it should be a project of commitment, not a project of passion. Passion comes and goes, but commitment is long-term. So the long-term wise is how do you do it from where you are? And it's not just reading, reading it just one step, right? How do you, it's a work that, that's consistent, it's work that is long-term. So how do we need to do that? So for example, if you are in healthcare field, how do you need to do that from where you are? And that's a thing that I think is important for us to think about, right? And how do we work in solidarity um, and to really understand our, our destinies are tied together, right? Uh, that, that we can still be guilty of anti-Blackness because of our proximity to whiteness. But our oppression really are also tied together, right? Our liberation is also contingent upon the liberation of all other groups, right? Otherwise, you look at historically, you see that it's simply one group taking turns being the scapegoat, mm-hmm. right? What we're seeing is, yeah, we're seeing is the different, uh, the, the different, historical period of time, you see the scapegoat of different groups. It's and we see like that a yo-yo, like go up and down. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And so and we see this conquest, uh, you know, divide and conquest, right? All the time, historically. Uh, groups get pitted against one another. We jostle for resources and power and because, because of the resources and power are limited. And so it's really important uh, for us to think about, you know, what do we need to do? I, you know, I find this process, uh, you know, this whole time, um, for me, it's really witness what's going on. And I'm also learning and I'm thinking, you know, how do I build this? Even though I was already doing it, you know, with the work I'm doing with, with UIC, with teaching, but I'm still thinking, you know, what, what, what else can I need to strengthen my anti-racist practices? What, what else do I need to do? How, how do I do better? And so it's a very, hum I'm still edu educating myself. So it's a very humbling process to really, mm -hmm. right, learn. And, and I will tell you, there is an analogy between the virus and the anti, you know, the, the, the racism, uh, there's analogy. Uh, which is your assignment? Simply assume that you have it. So you work against it. Mm. Right? So the virus, there's a reason why we ask people to wear a mask. Assume that you have it. Yeah. So you don't infect other people. So people are talking about these days, there's a lot of, right, talk about how do we, if you're, there's, you can't just be, non-racist, you have to be anti-racist, right? What does that even mean? And I saw this meme that I found really interesting. Simply assume that you, have, you are racist, then you work to unlearn, right? That's the key. And I find that to be really true, is that we all have to unlearn mm -hmm. the, the bias that, that's, that we inherit, yeah. Mm -hmm. I heard a lot of great things from you, Ada. So, like, passion comes and go. Yes, stay committed. Um, pretend that you are something or that you have something. And in order to fix it, start within. Right? You unlearn yourself first. Continue to stay educated. Um, and I think the main thing that really stuck out to me and probably our viewers and listeners as well is that once we realize that we're all intertwined and that we depend on each other, once we realize that we have something in common, um, we can take better steps forward to working together and. And what that may look like in the future, we're not too sure, but um, definitely a melting pot, I would say. Um, and I think that originally what this country was uh, described as a melting pot of beautiful people, cultures, and, and, and different races, I think, um, I think we need to live up to that. And so we got to take steps forward to be like, we are truly a melting pot. And this is truly how it should look like, working together in solidarity, helping each other out. And it... it if not by politics, if not through um, politics, you know, there's a bunch of events that happens, right? And I think I was just trying to imagine different organizations from different um, communities just coming together and just, I don't know, doing something festive, festive and just something fun and just to show people that um, you can stand next to your other. But I want to kind of uh, address that. I think, you know, in the post-racial society, we tend to think, we cannot achieve that through being being colorblind, mm -hmm. right? For sure. I, I think there's a danger of the melting pot is to assume that we will all be the same, that we are simply human. Mm. Sure, that's an ideal. But before that, we need to recognize, right? As much as race is a social, is a construct, racism has consequences. So mm -hmm. we cannot be colorblind. In fact, right. we have to be color conscious and to really see how racism affects all of us in shared but also different ways. And that's how mm -hmm. discrimination and privilege work hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. Um, wow, this was, a, this was a lot and this is only an hour. I wish we had more time, Ada. But yeah. what, um, the last bit, the thing that I would ask you is what advice, what bit, bit of life advice you would like to leave our listeners and viewers right now? Um, so this is what I oftentimes say, education is not about learning. It's about unlearning, unlearning. You don't, call, you don't go to college to learn. You go to college to unlearn, right? So educate yourself, but don't stop there. Unlearn, right? Because we all inherit sexist and, and racist and classist 
ideas and images, right? So, so it's important for us to really reflect and unlearn. But that's only one step, you know, to really, uh, we, we cannot achieve, we cannot achieve equality, equity uh, without action. So it's not, and I want to say this very clearly, diversity and inclusion don't work, right? It's, a, it's an industry. The equity is a key, right? Diversity and inclusion are easy. You simply add colors into it. But equity, how to make sure that people are, are able to equitably participate in the society, that's long-term. And we haven't done that yet. We are so caught up in diversity and inclusion when in fact we know it just doesn't work. It's about equity. And that's the hard work, that's the long term. Mm. Okay. That's really deep. That's really, really deep. I know. Um, definitely like processing. Um, this discussion definitely like <clears throat> excuse me. Um, this discussion definitely like kind of made me think that. Yeah, I've got a, like, I, like I've said with all of the uh, previous um, podcasts, right? It's still like an endless journey of learning, but I guess now it's really more or less, yeah, it's more of a journey of unlearning <laughs> past behavior than learn the conditions while relearning how to properly approach certain situations a bit better. Mm -hmm. Definitely something that I'll be taking uh, yeah it's a consideration it's a, it's a lot i'm actually gonna re-listen to this later i'm gonna like okay let's break it down take some notes we're gonna have to yeah definitely definitely because this was definitely one of the more informative like um discussions we've had so like mm -hmm. definitely something that you know for us as well as you know our listeners and our viewers you know if you want to kind of re-listen or um you know replay this video definitely give that a shot right maybe take some notes you know um because there was a lot of information that was tossed out in such a short period of time and yeah. it's just a lot i felt like i just went through an entire semester of like a lecture you know it's uh uh i i know you you do podcasts you have to invite guests you, you're not you know it will be a long time before you invite me back so i thought no, I'll no. Throw up. but but here's <laughs> the thing soon. no no but here's the thing i you know i teach at the university i'm still learning Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm still reading. I'm still reflecting and I'm still doing the work on, of, on learning. And, and, you know, I'm, and I'm being, uh, it is humbling process to really think about what do I, you know, what else do I need to do? Right. What more, what else, how do I strengthen deep in my practice? It's never ending. Yeah. Right. So if you think about learning, it, it's, it's, you know, there's a time limit. But if you think about unlearning, it's lifetime because it's never done, right? Mm -hmm. Unlearning is never done. And so that's really the task. Thank you so much, Ada. Continuously unlearning. Ada, do you have any um, social media handles? Where could people find you, if you don't mind? Uh, absolutely. So if they, they can follow me on Facebook, uh, uh, Renegade Ada Jen, I have that. And also Instagram. S-J-A-D-A-C-H-E-N-G. Uh, so if you can put that, you know, when you put out the podcast, that would be great. Mm -hmm. And so I also have the website, uh, Renegade Edogen, and so they can follow events and yeah. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll have um, more episodes <laughs> with you in the future because there's a lot. <laughs> this, this, is, this is just the syllabus. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's like syllabus day i'm like oh my goodness what did i do <laughs> uh, um, right it's like i packed the whole semester material into the introduction uh, yeah. uh but you know I, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you both and and to really uh talk through some of the issues that i've been thinking about so i appreciate the opportunity definitely it was our pleasure to have you on as well definitely like right. especially during these times right when we're trying to especially figure out who we are, you know, Absolutely. like all this downtime, it's like, you know, you're stuck at home, away from your loved ones, away from your friends, family, right? You're just kind of in this, uh, I wouldn't say a hole, but like, you know, in this 
you're you're discovering a new part of yourself, right? Absolutely. Because we're, this is like unheard, like it's unheard of in our generation to be self isolated for so long, you know. So it's definitely something new. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, this is the you know historical time. It really mm-hmm. is, uh, and you know you kind of have to think about. Uh, what what should I be? What kind of person I want to be? Uh, and and you know I I have been uh, so I've been doing that kind of reckoning too. Uh, not so much in terms of trying not trying to make myself rebrand myself, not trying to uh, make myself loud on on Facebook. You know uh, you know that's not the goal. You know how do I amplify uh, marginalized voices, black voices, black perspectives, right? How do I work in solidarity? You know, I'm not perfect. I'm flawed. So how do I do that? I'm still learning. And, and, and so that's the task for everybody. Definitely. Definitely. <clears throat> so with that said, uh, would you like to close us out? Yeah. Um, so for our viewers and listeners, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, remember, you guys can find us on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Just search up The Eating Cast. Um, and yeah, so bunch of bunch of cool topics and guests that we feature on here so make sure to tune in and follow us definitely and again ada we just want to thank you for taking part of your day and stopping by and for our viewers and our listeners we want to thank you guys for tuning in and we will catch you all in the next one take care and bye-bye all right thank you so much bye